This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Take my breath away. 
Duffy there, breathlessly. You're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. On today's show, Jack Tomlins joins us to talk about the new trans and gender diverse parents guide. We also speak with Gabriel Alexanders from Queer Space about their submission to the Mental Health Royal Commission in Victoria. And later, Lee Carney joins us on behalf of the Human Rights Law Centre and Equality Australia to talk about the joint statement signed by 50 LGBTIQ organisations regarding religious discrimination. You're listening to 3CR Radio. Well, Jack Tomlins is a writer and trainer and has written a new guide for trans and gender diverse parents and joins us on the line from Perth today. Jack, welcome to 3CR. Afternoon, James. Nice to be here. Jack, the, the first thing that really jumped out to me was that trans and gender diverse parents are trailblazers, pioneers. You must have identified a huge need for this resource in Australia. Yes, that's absolutely true. When New South Wales Rambo Families came up with the idea of doing some work in this area, I went and did some research and looked at what was available and what had been written. And certainly in Australia, there was nothing. And even internationally, there was a very little bit of information, um, very few resources, um, most of which were American and don't really translate very well to a US audience. So we are pretty confident that this is absolutely groundbreaking. So what are some of the main issues the guide covers? Well, what we... What we did with the guide is that we invited a number of trans and gender diverse parents to be involved with it. And there's no, you know, there's very little research in this area. So how we worked was that I interviewed the parents involved and it was parents plus uh, one partner in one case and also a couple of kids. And we did some quite lengthy, detailed interviews, which enabled the participants to give a bit of their background and history, their own kind of growing up and coming to awareness of their identity, and then the issues that had um, had eventuated for them once they were parents or, or becoming parents. So we, we then kind of put those interviews together as eight discrete stories, if you like, of lived experience. And so the, you know, I think the strength of the resource is that each of those individual stories tell uh, really quite uh, remarkable journeys and deal with a lot of the issues that those parents have had to manage over the course of that journey. What's the story that struck you the most? What moved you the most or, or did you feel was the most kind of, you know, insightful? That's a very difficult question. I think there probably, there probably is one that stands out because it's a little bit different and that is the story of a trans man, Al, who, had, who gave birth to his child and uh, transitioned post the birth of his child, so now identifies as a trans dad who had a baby. And that is a, an absolutely fascinating story, uh, and I found that uh, really interesting and insightful. But the other, you know, the, the thing about the resource is that the all, all the other stories they really touch on some critical issues and uh, just provide somebody reading it who might be dealing with a similar sort of issues with some real insights, 
perhaps some confidence about how to manage some of these issues, perhaps some advice on, on ways in which to handle things that come up. Absolutely. What are some of the challenges that parents you know, focused on in particular and gave guidance for other parents? Look, one of the things that we focused on with, with parents who had kids who were, you know, anything from sort of five up, really, was how they supported their kids and how they worked with their kids throughout their transition. Because that, you know, that's a, a really, that's a really tough challenge. And that's one of the things that, that I found that all, all the parents, it was consistent to my all the parents, was this real deep-rooted concern for the kids. Uh, and this kind of or almost this conflict that they had that they had you know they needed to transition that that it was in some cases really the last resort the last thing they wanted to do because they knew it would have an impact on their kids but that it was something that they absolutely needed to do but were really really careful about how they manage that and so you know we, they, they talk about the discussions that they had with their kids at different ages and I think for transparents, that is one of the critical issues. You know, how do you talk to your kids about these issues? What might some of the responses be from those kids? How are you going to manage that? How are you going to deal with their friends? How are you going to deal with the school that they go to or their daycare um, or with other relatives? So for me, I think one of the strengths of the resource is the discussion around those issues. So how did people have those conversations? Because that sounds like a huge responsibility and also something that's very stressful for a parent, a huge burden, if you like. Look, I wouldn't say burden. Yes, yes, an enormous challenge and yes, very difficult. But, you know, what, what's lovely about the stories is that it, it's the way in which they did that. So they, one of them that comes to mind, for example... They decided to to talk to their kids at three different ages. So it's about age-appropriate language and concept. And in this case, they had that conversation with their kids at the beginning of a school holiday. So the kids had a little bit of time to process it. The parents also talked to the school. And in the stories, they describe it really quite you know, explicitly the words they used, how they how they explained it to their kids of different ages and what those kids felt, what their immediate response was and also, you know, what their response was over time. Yeah, because, of course, kids are, you know, go through different stages. They're not a homogeneous group. There's cultural differences as well. What just jumped into my head was it must be very challenging when you're a transparent, you've got a teenager, if you want to transition. Uh, what were some of the issues that came up with teenagers? Look, I think, again, with older kids, it's different. In some cases, when the kids were really little, it's kind of all they had known their parent in their uh, affirmed gender, and that was was easier. But yes, of course, when the kids are older, that can be very difficult. And there are actually some, an example in the in the resource of a parent who has sort of young adult children. Again, very different. So look, there. Yes, there are different challenges there. I think kids, young people, worry about. Uh, you know, they it's it's something that can be, you know, they go they they worry that they're going to lose a parent. I think was one of the common themes that they're going to lose a dad or a mum, 
And, and often, you know, the cases they don't, they find that they are still able to do those things, but they do feel the loss of a parent. They, they also might worry about the relationship between the two existing parents and whether that's going to be maintained or not. So there's some very, there's some very big challenges there. You know, and then there's just a, a, a matter of actually understanding what might be going on for, for their parents. And I think they know that this is not something that they would uh, do lightly. And I think, you know, another, another really uh, strong sense of, that I got from all the stories was that, you know, that in many ways these parents are really prioritising everybody else you know, their partner and their kids and their their concerns are huge. So I guess the, the book probably explores self-care matters as well and how do you look after yourself when you're focused on looking after everyone else? Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, and I think that, that was one of the things that is really interesting is that, you know, my sense is that certainly the kids and partners were really foremost in, in parents' minds and certainly there's discussion in the resource of how, uh, how people manage that, that particular transition and how they manage those relationships. So, for example, some, some people got professional counselling and some people hooked, with, hooked in with online support groups or with, you know, real-life support groups. Although those, re- you know, there's not a lot of that, but certainly, certainly in Victoria and certainly in New South Wales, there are groups, support groups for trans and gender diverse parents. Jack, you've got the launch of the resource for trans and gender diverse parents coming up. So Heads and Hyenas next week, Thursday, July the 25th. And we are really, really pleased and honoured to have Jeremy Wiggins, who's a trans advocate and dad, and he was LGBTI Person of the Year. He's going to launch it for us. And then I've got a panel of four people uh, who are in the guide who will be talking. So I will be saying not very much. That's the plan. And hopefully there will be an opportunity for people who come to really, uh, you know, engage with the, the panel and, and ask questions. So it starts at 6.30, but I'm going to get the ball rolling bang on at quarter to seven to make sure that we can hear from Jeremy and that we have a really good opportunity to hear from those parents and a really good Q&A afterwards. And, of course, you've got a Facebook page as well so people can get more info. There's an event there, and everybody who comes can get a, uh, a free copy. You know, one of the other uh, target audiences, although it's, it's designed for parents, is also service providers. We know that service providers know, know diddly squat about this area. And so if people want to take it to give to their GP or their counsellor, Hopefully there'll be enough copies to do that as well. Awesome stuff, Jack Tomlins. Thanks so much for joining me today on 3CR and congratulations on the resource. Thank you very much. We're on In Your Face on 3CR and here's Patty Smith.
Kelly Smith there from her 1989 album Dream of Life. That was Dream of Life. You're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. While Gabriel Alexanders is the policy officer at Queer Space at Drummond Street Services and joins us on the line to talk about their submission to the Victorian government's Royal Commission into Mental Health. Gabriel, welcome to 3CR. Thanks, James. Your submission's are really comprehensive. It's got 19 key recommendations. Which one jumps out to you the most as the area historically most neglected by the Victorian government regarding the LGBTIQ community? Yeah, look, I think what jumps out to me is uh, relevant to the LGBTI community, but also many other communities, marginalised groups and, and vulnerable cohorts. And I think the the recommendation there is sort of more in relation to the overall approach about having a heightened or more heightened focus on prevention and early intervention services. What we're seeing with this Royal Commission, I mean, it is in the terms of reference, in the scope of the terms of reference to look at prevention and early intervention, but most of the media so far has been sort of oriented around the clinical side of things, which is often sort of, you know, when you're looking at your more tertiary uh, response ends and then acute ends of the system. So we would like to sort of see, I suppose, government kind of stepping outside the box a little bit and having a look at recognising the special or particular skills of uh, early intervention prevention workforces. Yeah, because your submission really highlights that the Royal Commission's work is mostly future-focused, but your submission also talks about missed opportunities in the past regarding early interventions. Can you elaborate on that a bit more with an LGBTIQ focus? Yeah, look, I think that, you know, what we sort of, uh, are concerned about really there is probably the poor experiences that a lot of LGBTIQ plus people have had in the system. The I guess the lack of rapport between uh, the psychiatric models and LGBTI lived experience and identities and expressions and the pathologisation of those identities and lived experiences. You know, that that does concern us and we believe that you know, that is one of the reasons why uh, many LGBTIQ plus people have, yeah, not accessed service systems as early as they uh, should have or have gone under the radar or just, you know, been um, avoiding system. Your submission also very sensibly talks about the need to integrate the findings from other inquiries, such as the Victorian Government's 2015 Royal Commission into Family Violence. At Drummond Street Services, you must really see a link between LGBTIQ mental health and family violence. Yeah, look, we, we certainly do. We know that, you know that the risk factors to poor mental health, for example, in childhood are similar to those underpinning adult mental health crisis, and they sort of originate around parenting and family issues. And we also know that, you know, that the, I guess, the outcomes around family functioning and, and then witnessing family violence for people becomes a extreme or has a huge impact on the system as people start to grapple with trauma um, and recovery around complex post-traumatic stress disorder and that sort of a thing. We know that a lot of the LGBTIQ people who are using... Uh, our family violence service uh, have extremely poor uh, mental health outcomes and we see significant rates of mental health distress amongst those either experiencing or using violence, which of course reflects the health finding around 
wide-ranging and persistent effects on cis women's physical and mental health, for example, who experience IPV, and research that identifies men too who have experienced family violence more likely to report depressive symptoms compared to men who haven't. And given that research shows that LGBTIQ people experience poor mental health at uh, higher rates than non-LGBTIQ people, this suggests these correlations continue to need serious uh, response and to be addressed to mitigate sort of poor mental health outcomes for queer communities. It sounds like the mental health system in Victoria has really failed in its uh, capacity to address trauma and its complexities. Yes, yes, most certainly. Uh, and we, for the last five years, uh, Drummond Street and, and some queer space clients as well, Drummond Street has been the largest provider of the services around the National Redress Scheme, which was a result of the Institutional Abuse Inquiry, and we provide a range of services to survivors there. And look, our experiences in the delivery of these services has provided some pretty um, important insights for us, as far as we're concerned, uh, around the support needs and recovery pathways for survivors of child sexual abuse, you know, including where, those, where that abuse, you know, whether it occurred within family or institutional settings. We've found that, you know, these adult survivor clients experience significant complex trauma, uh, physical issues and poor mental health in a range of domains. And what we're sort of finding is that 93% of those clients reported histories of diagnosed uh, mental illness and treatment, 45 experienced undiagnosed treated symptoms. But I guess the, the other thing is too is that you know, there's rates and prevalence of sexual assault experiences between different LGBTI cohorts and there's more research that's required there. So trying to find out the right sort of service response for LGBTI adult survivors needs a lot more work, um, a lot more research. The submission to the Royal Commission into Mental Health from Drummond Street Services highlights the challenges and complexities of help-seeking. That must be a huge barrier to people finding and accessing appropriate mental health support. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. And, you know, again, it goes back to those prior experiences that people might have had in the system or experiences of harms in the system and their... You know, it's, it's it's definitely something that needs to be addressed. We actually referred to a recommendation from uh, a, a submission that was put forward by the Australian Federation of Disability Organisations and Disability Resource Centre, uh, Disability Justice Australia and the Women's Mental Health Network uh, and Women with Disabilities. There was a lot of people that uh, got together to write this submission. But they raised the issue around safety and wards for for women, but they also did mention in their recommendation that, you know, support, flexibility and options, for example, needed to be provided for gender diverse, intersex, non-binary and gender non-conforming people. So, yeah, I mean, it's not just the, the queer organisations that are raising these issues of ward safety and including LGBTI people in that remit. So, yeah, we would like to see, I suppose, recommendations from the right to be right to be safe report by Lynn Coulson-Barr. That report was looking at a whole heap of inefficiencies and poor reporting around safety in the mental health system. So we would like to see uh, a lot of those recommendations cross-analysed and checked that you know they're actually being implemented uh, from here forward. 
you highlight problems with monitoring health inequalities in some populations. Obviously, the LGBTIQ community is one of those populations. That must be particularly evident in some cohorts of the LGBTIQ community. Uh, Is that something that you found at Drummond Street Services? Yeah, look, we've certainly found that. Are you referring to the mental health outcomes? Yeah, absolutely, and the health inequalities there. Yeah, yeah, look, totally. And and all of our research that we've been doing around depression and anxiety uh, has definitely shown that there's been sort of differential outcomes for uh, different groups under the LGBTI umbrella. So, I mean, looking at our midsummer survey as well, we had some very disparate responses depending on what letter of the alphabet you were. I mean... Broadly, two-thirds of respondents, or 63%, stated they accessed a mental health service. 49 accessed those from a public GP mainly. But, However, trans people were most likely to have accessed mental health services and cis women. And um, there were high levels of disadvantage and wellbeing risks there with financial hardship. And again, trans women sort of came up on the top of that scale when you're sort of comparing... The outcomes, so 59% of trans women experienced uh, the highest levels of financial hardship. So, you know, if you sort of mix the sort of social determinants of health uh, with mental health and wellbeing, and you're looking at stats like that, well, yeah, you're going to have some, some really disparate results that need some addressing. Your submission recommends the trialling of an LGBTIQ community screening and outcome tool. First yep. of all, what is that and what would it involve? So I suppose that to answer that, I'd be, you know, better place to, I guess, give you a sense of Drummond Street's approach. We look at a variety of risk and protective factors in people's lives, ways in which I suppose their their risks might be exacerbated and their, their risk to health might be exacerbated. So if you look at saving saving costs upstream, you've got to look at the risk factors that are actually modifiable. So we're sort of looking at risk factors like alcohol and drug abuse, violence, antisocial behaviour, crime and offending, you know, broadly in the Drummond Street model. However, when you're looking at risk and protective factors for LGBTIQ people for things like anxiety and depression, you do sort of capture some of those broad risk factors that are across the community. But then there's other specific things that impact queer people differently. So, you know, we've been sort of developing a way of, I guess, cross-referencing the broader risk factors with those that we've identified or have been identified by LGBTI people as being uh, things that really impact their wellbeing. You've also recommended clinical trials uh, for the LGBTIQ community. What trials in particular should be undertaken? I think just making sure that... So with clinical trials... I'd be more sort of focusing on looking at not just programs in the clinical sort of tertiary end of the system, but looking at different sort of therapeutic responses that also fall outside of that sort of diagnostic clinical approach. So I think that using a risk and protective factor tool with a range of services that provide, I suppose, mental health benefits so, I mean, currently we're working on some suicide prevention programs around the idea of mentoring, and we're aiming to build resilience and mental health among queer people with a mentoring project. So it's about sort of 
with the evaluation of projects like that, using instruments that you can gauge quality outcomes for those people by using risk and protective factor instruments. So when you've started doing this, this project, for example, or this program, you know, doing a, a pre-evaluation of, of someone's um, risk and protective factors and then seeing if any more protective factors throughout that project have developed and how that sort of assisted the person and their well-being overall. So, you know, mental health, the, the tricky thing about, you know, what we see around mental health is that the, the cause and effect can often be read back to front. So people might look at the impacts of poor mental health on the community but not look at the drivers of poor mental health. So looking at risk and protective factors for us has a way of sort of joining up that circle a little bit more, which is why we would really like to do it. But also, you know, we think that the history of the mental health system and people's poor experiences, it would be great for us to gain more knowledge around those specific uh, drivers of poor mental health for LGBTIQ plus people and how each cohort is impacted as well by different variables. So, you know, what someone who is a transgender person will have different um, drivers of poor mental health potentially to a lesbian woman. But we just need to, we need to capture the data. We need to find out. We need instruments to do that. And there's not really a lot of data collection available. Finally, Gabrielle, if you could give the Victorian Government and the Royal Commission one key message about Victoria's mental health system and what it needs to do to you know, address problems, what would that key message be? Oh, it's hard to put into one, James. <laughs> I bet. It really got me there. Look, I just, I think it would, I think for, for LGBTI communities, I think capturing data is excruciatingly important. I just don't think that we have enough and I don't think that you know, I would like to see services, you know, sort of almost mandated, I suppose, to to collect data to, to prove that they're capable of servicing uh, LGBTIQ communities appropriately. So I think for LGBTI people that, that is highly important to build the evidence to, you know, develop the case for exactly what we need and for who we need it for. And then I think, you know, more broadly in the system, I go back again to the prevention and early intervention and looking at, you know, having a public model of health approach to mental health and incorporating, you know, things like a action plan for mental wellbeing that takes a public model of health approach and to look at an early intervention and prevention workforce strategy. Gabriel, thank you so much for joining me today on 3CR. It's much appreciated. No problem. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Okay, bye. Bye. Gabriel Alexander's there from Drummond Street Services talking about their submission to the Victorian Government's Royal Commission into the state's mental health system. If you are on In Your Face on 3CR, and here's Joan Armour Trading. Show some emotion Put expression in your eyes Light up If you're feeling happy But if it's bad Then let those tears roll down
number trading shows some emotion. You're on In Your Face on 3CR. Well, this week, a joint statement signed by 50 LGBTIQ organisations in Australia was released regarding religious discrimination. On the line, we have Lee Carney representing the Human Rights Law Centre and Equality Australia. Lee, welcome to 3CR. Thanks so much for having me. Give us a summary of what the joint statement says. The joint statement was put out by more than 50 groups. And what we essentially said was that we have always stood firm in the face of discrimination in our communities. We have long advocated to end discrimination against LGBTIQ plus people, but we've also stood with people of colour um, and multicultural communities. We've long stood against disability discrimination and age discrimination. And so we too stand side by side with people of faith, including LGBTIQ plus people of faith, against any discrimination that they face on the basis of their religion. However, uh, we do not support any licence to discriminate against others, including LGBTIQ plus folks, under the guise of religion. So tell us uh, some of the organisations who signed up. Equality Australia, Equality Tasmania, Switchboard, um, Thorn Harbour Health, ACON, so Transgender Victoria, SARA, there was a whole number of them. Every single state and territory was represented. And we also had a number of affirming religious communities, including Aleph Melbourne, Equal Voices, Welcoming Australia, um, as well as some um, kind of multicultural community organisations, including the Australian GLBTIQ Multicultural Council and Democracy in Colour. It seems quite strategic. On the one hand, you've, you've called on the federal government to actually follow through and pass religious discrimination legislation like they've been banging on about for ages. But on the other hand, you've said, look, OK, do that, but find a balance between protecting the civil rights of minority groups and the human rights of minority groups. Would that be a fair summary of, of the strategy that's being used here? That's right. And I think what we're trying to do is to remind people that you know, the ACL doesn't speak for all Christians and what they're asking for is not really what this debate should be about, which is about how we can create a more accepting, tolerant, welcoming society for all of us. And part of that is recognising that there is discrimination against LGBTIQ plus people, which continues, but there is also religious discrimination, including quite horrendous Islamophobia and anti-Semitism, which we've seen recently has resulted in people being turned away from services or, you know, the kind of incitement to violence that led to the horrific Christchurch shootings. These are issues which also need to be addressed. And so what we're trying to do here with this statement and with our strategy is to not allow our opponents to divide LGBTIQ plus people from our friends and families and colleagues and communities and allies and by saying, actually, we are standing firm against discrimination and any licence to discriminate. How has the Australian Christian lobby reacted to the joint statement? Have they reacted? I don't know whether they've... I haven't seen any reaction yet, but I'm sure we'll see something soon. We'll just have to keep an eye out. How would you describe their agenda regarding so-called religious freedom protections in Australia? It's clear that they're trying to build a mass movement of people to try and further their own power and their own agenda, but the actual specifics of what they want are quite unclear. And this is part of why the debates have been so confused, because what they're really asking for is the unfettered right for people of faith to do what they want with impunity, regardless of the fact that sometimes for a minority of Christians that they speak for, this includes discriminating against others in our communities. Have you received a response yet from the federal government regarding your joint statement? 
Not yet, but we've drawn it to their attention and we're continuing to call on them to consult with LGBTIQ plus communities when they're considering these reforms. It's important to note that they have already committed to meet with faith communities, who are, including the Australian Christian Lobby, who are the ones calling for these broad religious freedom laws, which will wind back equality for LGBTIQ plus Australians. And if that is the case, then we also need to be in the room. We need to see the details of this religious discrimination bill so that we are aware of what it contains and that we can educate the community about exactly what this will mean for all of us so that we can hopefully have a civil and nuanced debate, not the current drip feed of information, which unfortunately is leading to a lot of confusion and unnecessary stress. It's interesting they haven't said anything yet. I mean, they've got huge media resources and, of course, religious freedom is a so-called you know, cornerstone issue for them. Um, it's almost like they're scratching their heads and thinking, hang on a second, uh, the LGBTIQ community is calling for religious discrimination protections and legislation. What do we do now? It's like you've caught and them I a bit think, flat-footed. Yeah, I think that potentially this was part of our strategy to show that really we do stand with people of faith. And the more that the media or our opponents try to cast this as some kind of issue where it's um, you know, God versus the gays, the more that we lose, really, because that is a harmful message that pretends that there are no LGBTIQ plus people of faith and that tries to, I guess, divide our society even more and section LGBTIQ plus people off from other people in a way that is not going to be conducive to us having a diverse, multicultural, accepting society. Have you heard anything from the Labor Party regarding the joint statement? I mean, they've bought into this narrative that the election was a religious freedom election and that they need to appeal to people of faith. Have they reacted? What have they said? Or have they been silent too? They haven't reacted yet, but I have seen that the opposition leader, Anthony Albanese, did make a statement yesterday reaffirming his commitment to LGBTIQ plus equality in the face of some of the media reporting that happened during the last sitting week, where there were some questions about what is the ALP going to do now post-election. But I think what we have to do as LGBTIQ plus and equality advocates is to continue to work with all politicians and every single member of our community to be firm on the message that we stand against discrimination in all forms. And we will stand with our allies um, who face discrimination, but we are not going to allow any new laws which seek to wind back equality. There should be no price to be paid for marriage equality. Have you received any community criticism of the joint statement? And just playing the devil's advocate for a moment, one follower on our Facebook page said they thought it was pandering to the Liberal and Labor parties. What's your response to that? We have received some criticism on social media. I'm a bit, um, I think some of it is a mixture of genuine confusion because we've had these religious freedom laws that everyone's talking about. How are they different from these religious discrimination laws? I think there is a lot of confusion out there. In response to the criticism that is pandering, I would absolutely reject that. This was important for us to do, having spoken to our stakeholders, having done community consultations around the country and deciding after meeting with you know, the people who we represent and our allies who are really struggling with these debates as well, that we're not going to allow our opponents to divide us, that on principle we will stand against discrimination that people of faith do face in our communities and it is just as important that we do that as 
as that we take a stand for LGBTIQ plus people and the discrimination that we still face. It's quite an achievement that you've got 50 LGBTIQ organisations to sign a joint statement on an issue potentially as polarising as religious discrimination. Was there much dissent and debate? What was the process like that you undertook? You mentioned consultations before. Mm. So there has been a lot of discussion about the strategy of it and the question of do we wait until we see a Religious Discrimination Act? What exactly are we going to say in our statement? But ultimately, all of the organisations that signed agreed to the principles that we signed up to and they are very simple really that we do support freedom of religion. We support, in the sense that we support a shield to protect people of faith from discrimination, but we don't support any laws that turn that shield into a sword to attack others. Absolutely. And of course, we've seen how it is a a sword or can be used as a sword to attack others in the US recently with Trump's anti-Muslim rhetoric, particularly in relation to one of the members of their Congress who is from a Muslim background. So this religious freedom debate, would you say in some ways is focusing on religious protections for people of certain faiths and not others? The mainstream coverage of it has been like that. It is, has really focused on very small, far-right, religious, conservative Christian organisations and their attempts to wind back equality for LGBTIQ plus groups, but also for women and for other religious groups. Whereas I think what we need to do is take a step back and think about how this debate fits into what is happening on a global level. When you're having comments like, go back to where you came from, directed at Muslim women, Muslim Congress women of colour, these are comments that are both about the countries that they're from, but they're also about their religion. And we need to be clear that when people are targeted because of who they are, because of their religion, because of their sexuality, their gender identity, their sex characteristics, on any of those grounds, that is unacceptable. We do not stand for that type of discrimination here. During the course of your consultations and the discussions with the 50 LGBTIQ organisations who signed the joint statement, was there much talk about how the religious freedom debate has impacted on their particular community's mental health and the distress that this must be digging up and the trauma it must be causing? Unfortunately, there has been a huge amount of stress caused by the tenor of these debates. A lot of people have um, said that this feels like the Marriage Equality Postal Survey 2.0. There's been a spike in calls for assistance for LGBTIQ mental health support services. There's also been, unfortunately, some really unfortunate trolling that's been going on of high-profile celebrities, but also support services that are having to close their lines because they're receiving so many calls of harassment to their staff who are there to provide mental health support for members of the LGBTIQ plus community. I would definitely encourage anyone who's been listening to this today to head across to the Switchboard Victoria website. If you have been um, experiencing any stress or difficulties during the religious freedom debates, that's a really fantastic self-care resource there to remind you that it's okay to take a break and to give you all kinds of ideas about where you might be able to reach out to for support and to take care of yourself if you are feeling like these debates are making your life difficult. It sounds like the federal government really needs to look at the impacts this debate is causing on the community and take steps to minimise the damage. It doesn't sound like they're particularly tuned into that nuance, though. This is what's, I think, been really frustrating, the idea that we can have these debates and that if people post things on social media or if they say things in the public sphere that somehow hateful things directed towards the LGBTIQ plus community 
don't have an impact. What we do know is that when we have to hear you know, harmful comments or hateful comments, prejudice, discrimination, it does have an impact on your mental health. And at the same time as we're having these debates, we're having a Royal Commission into Victoria's mental health system. And um, the Australian government has just installed a national suicide commissioner, not for some reason, not acknowledging the fact that when you look at rates of suicide in this country, LGBTIQ plus people, unfortunately, are disproportionately represented in all of those statistics. One in two transgender young people will attempt suicide in their life. That should be a national tragedy that we are all talking about, and we should be instituting laws to make this less common to support transgender and gender-diverse young people, not introducing more laws. We call to the, front, uh, to the forefront of everyone's minds debates about whether trans and gender-diverse young people have a right to exist or not. And one would hope that the federal government got that message this week, considering Roe Allen gave a very high-profile address to Victoria's Mental Health Royal Commission about the levels of, of suicide or attempted suicide within the LGBTIQ community and really highlighting that, you know, stigma obviously is something that's very unhelpful. Absolutely. What would we do without Roe Allen? (laughs) It was fantastic to see so many LGBTIQ plus community organisations give evidence for that Royal Commission. And I suppose what we've done this week is we've written to the National Suicide Commissioner uh, with Switchboard Victoria asking for a meeting to talk about the fact that any inquiry into suicide on a national level has to look at how the Australian government Decisions and debates have an impact on the mental health and well-being of people in our community and what needs to be done to urgently address the high rates of mental health issues and suicide within the LGBTIQ plus community. Lee Carney, keep up the fight. Thanks so much for joining us today on 3CR. It's much appreciated and great work with the joint statement. Hopefully the federal government will get the message and take steps to ensure that this debate isn't harmful and that it also addresses you know, people's right to practice their religion in a way that doesn't actually impede the human rights and civil rights of others. Thanks for your time, Masavo. Thank you.
listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.